Good morning. Great to see everyone here this day. I invite you to take God's word and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Thanksgiving is gone. I trust it was a, a blessed holiday for everyone, a good time with family and friends. And now the Christmas season is upon us. In case you're wondering, we'll begin our celebration of Advent on December the 9th. That's a Sunday, right? December the 9th. We'll commence our our celebration of Advent. And we're going to do just a little mini-series, and you might want to read ahead as a family. Uh, We're going to look at Psalm 22 on December the 9th, uh, the Good Shepherd. And then Psalm 23 on the following Sunday, the Great Shepherd. And then Psalm 24, the chief shepherd, on whatever the Sunday is after that. I can't keep track of the dates. But there you go. That will be our Advent season, and we can be preparing our hearts for that, that we would indeed catch, so to speak, a fresh glimpse and a deeper appreciation for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let me just read the first couple of verses. Paul called by the will of God. To be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Did you notice the description? In the second verse, Paul's description of the believers, the church at Corinth, right there, he describes them as those sanctified in Christ Jesus. They have been, in other words, implanted into Christ. They have been knit together with Christ by virtue of the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God, and because of that union, they are set apart from the world to God. They are now part of the new creation. They are now part of the age to come. And then notice what he says immediately following in the same verse, called to be saints. This is who they are. This is, in black and white, explicit terms, Clearly stated, their identity. What's the problem in the church at Corinth? They've lost sight of who they are. They are not living in the reality of who they are. And there is this detachment between what they know on the one hand and what they do or practice on the other hand. And for that reason, over the course of this epistle, in this letter... Paul asks the same question 10 times. What is it? Do you not know? 10 times. It is a carefully crafted coined phrase designed to draw their attention to this fact that what they know on the one hand and what they do on the other hand are miles, light years, let's say, apart. They are not living consistent in a consistent fashion in a manner that is consistent with their identity in Christ as saints. 
those who are sanctified. And so 10 times he throws that question out there, do you not know? Six times in chapter 6. Within chapter 6, three times in the first 11 verses. And you guessed it, three times in verses 12 through 20, which form our text for today. And so follow along as I read God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. You listen for that question, do you not know? Three times, you can handle this. Clever bunch, I know you are. You listen for it three times. Do you not know? And also listen for an Old Testament text. He's going to reach way back into the scriptures, way back into the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, right back to the garden. And he is going to cite the Old Testament. You listen for it. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. But I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. But for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord. And will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So, glorify God in your body. Did you get it? Do you not know? Three times. Pretty obvious, wasn't it? Right there at the outset of verse 15, do you not know? The start of verse 16, do you not know? And the third, the start of verse 19, do you not know? And that question forms the structure of this passage. Did you get the Old Testament citation? Paul introduces it. He makes it pretty obvious right there in verse 16 at the end. As it is written. Where? Book of Genesis. Chapter 2. Verse 24. The two will become one flesh. So you now have the structure of the test. The text. It hangs on that question, do you not know, put out there three times, you now have the main thought, if you like, behind the text, the context for the text. And it's that citation again from Genesis chapter 2, the two will become one flesh. It is a reference to the marriage bed. It is a reference to the coming together of a man and a woman, a husband and wife. Why did God do that? This is a bit of background. 
why did God design it this way? Two very obvious and important reasons. The first is this, for man's good, for our good. God removes one of Adam's ribs to form Eve, right? You remember the creation narrative. He then brings Eve to Adam, and the two become one flesh. It is the coming together. It is symbolic of the marriage bed. It is God's gift to them. And God himself declares that this is, this is good. It is for man's good. Secondly, it is for God's glory. God designed this relationship, this coming together whereby we become one flesh. He designed it to represent his relationship with his people. It points, it's a picture of his covenantal union with those whom he claims as his own. Genesis 2, 24, Paul drops it there right in the middle of the text and it frames his thinking, his argument, his thought in this text as he then throws that question out there, do you not know? But why? Why does he have to ask that question three times? And why does he have to make this appeal to Genesis 2.24 and unpack it by asking that question, do you not know, three times? Why? He tells us in verses 12 and 13. They're a little tricky, 12 and 13, a little tricky. If you're using the English Standard Version, you will notice in verses 12 and 13, quotation marks. If you're using the New American, at least my New American that I have back there in the office, or my King James, the authorized version, there are no quotation marks. And so it makes it very difficult to understand that in these verses, Paul is actually quoting the Corinthians. He's received a report. He's heard what it is they think and how it is they practice. And so notice verse 12, what it is they say. It's in quotation marks. All things are lawful for me. Meaning what? I can do whatever I want. What does Paul say? But not all things are helpful. Here it is again. All things are lawful for me. Christian liberty to be celebrated. What does Paul say? But I will not be enslaved by anything. And then there's another slogan. It's in quotation marks as well. In verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, end quotation, right? I'm going to suggest to you that the quotation mark shouldn't be there. It should actually read, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other, end quotation. And this is another slogan championed by some of the Corinthian believers, and evidently what they meant by it was as follows. Look, food only serves one purpose. What? To be consumed. The stomach only serves one purpose. What is it? To consume. Uh, both are perishable. Both are material. Both are physical. God's going to destroy both one and the other. In other words, they are, in the grand scheme of things, when we think of eternity, inconsequential. What has this got to do with anything? The Corinthians were implying this to the marriage bed. They were applying this to sex. And they were basically saying this, the body exists for sex. 
and sex exists for the body. And both are temporal, both are material, both are physical. God's going to destroy both. Therefore, it doesn't matter what we do with the body. It doesn't matter. It is inconsequential. I am free to live however I please and indulge sexual immorality. That is what some of the Corinthian believers are actually championing. Where would they get such an idea from? They get it, maybe not directly, but it certainly comes from him, from that great philosopher known as Plato. So we are hundreds of years before the Lord Jesus, and Plato, he introduces an entire philosophical system which shapes Western civilization, and that philosophical system still shapes us today. And the system is known as dualism. And in a dualistic worldview, what's the basic paradigm? The paradigm is simply this. There is a spiritual realm, okay? Spiritual sphere. And there is a physical realm. Spiritual, physical. So everything is dual. Just these two realms, dualistic. The spiritual and the material. The spiritual is good. The material, not so good. The spiritual is eternal. The material, it isn't eternal. The spiritual is superior The physical material is inferior. The spiritual is the ideal, and the physical is simply simply representative of that ideal. Therefore, in the grand scheme of things, your physical existence is of no consequence whatsoever. The only thing that matters is the spiritual. That is at the bedrock of Greek philosophy. It infiltrates the church at a very early age, and some go in one of two directions. Some go in the direction of what? Asceticism. Paul's going to get there in the first six verses of chapter seven, because there's some in the church who are practicing ascetics. And they say, look, because this is the way the world is, there's a spiritual realm and there's a physical realm and the physical is not no consequence whatsoever. All that matters is the spiritual. Well, what we need to do is deprive the physical. We need to deprive our bodies. We need to beat our bodies, so to speak, in order to release the spirit, the soul, for closer fellowship and communion with God. And so some go in that direction, and he's going to address it in the seventh chapter. But right now, he's addressing those who've gone in a completely different direction. And they've concluded what? Well, because this is the way the world is, the cosmos, that there's the spiritual and the material, and we know the spiritual is good and the material is bad or at least unhelpful, and we know the spiritual is far superior to the inferior, well, then it doesn't really matter what we do in the physical. It has no bearing on the eternal and the spiritual. Therefore, the stomach is for food. The food is for the stomach. It doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want indulge whatever you want. It is of no consequence at all. This is their slogan. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. And as a result, there is a significant segment of the church, the people of God, saints in the church at Corinth who are indulging sexual immorality. And what does Paul say? Look, I got a slogan of my own, folks. Here it is. It's from the book of Genesis. Chapter 2, verse 24. The two will become one flesh. You've got your slogan. This is my slogan. And you know the scriptures. And you know the implications of this text. And let me painfully draw them out again for you by asking that question three times. Do you not know? You 
do know. And you are acting in a manner, a fashion that is completely contrary to biblical truth. And so what's the first thing they really do know? It's there in the 15th verse. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? My fingers are members of my body. My arms are members of my body, my legs, my ears. You're getting the idea, right? There is, just as we have a physical body, which is designed to point to this reality, there is a spiritual body, or if you like, a mystical body, the head of which is the Lord Jesus himself. And the Lord Jesus baptizes by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the instrument. The Lord Jesus is the one who performs the baptism. The Lord Jesus baptizes by the Holy Spirit his people into his body whereby they become what? One with him, and therefore what? Members of his body, knit together with him. Work backwards. What are the implications? 14th verse. God raised the Lord, the one who is the head of the body. He raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. We are members of his body. The head has been raised from the dead. We have this absolute guarantee, certainty, therefore, that the rest of the members of the body will also be raised. What's going to be raised? My body, my physical body. Therefore, it is what? It is good in the sight of God. It is eternal in the sight of God. Work even further back into the 13th verse. What does Paul say, therefore, at the end? Because we are members of his body, the body is for the Lord. It belongs to him. And Paul's point is simply this. I think we can sum it up as follows. He has complete lordship over the Christian's body. And not only is the body for the Lord, but the Lord is for the body. Meaning what? He dwells in it by the Spirit and makes it his temple. Now work even further back in the 13th verse. What is Paul's conclusion, therefore? The body is not meant for sexual immorality. In the light of Genesis 2.24, this has escaped you. You do not understand it. You've been influenced by a dualistic thinking, platonic philosophy. You've now practiced, you're practicing hedonists, basically, and you're indulging in sexual immorality. Do you not know the implications of Genesis 2.24? Do you not know that your bodies are now knit together with Christ and your body belongs to him and the Lord is Lord over the body. What's the second thing they don't know, but they really do know? It's right there in verse 16. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? The question is prefaced in verse 15 with another question. Shall I then take the members of Christ? So those who are part of Christ's body, one with him, and make them members of a prostitute. In other words, shall I indulge in sexual immorality, one who is a member of Christ? Never. It makes no sense at all. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, there's Paul's slogan, 
The two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Follow his thinking. If you just get three truths, you've got the flow of verses 15 through 18. The first is this. It's based on what he says again in verse 16 from Genesis 2. The marriage bed. This is the point Paul is making. The marriage bed entails a union between a man and a woman. That's what's transpiring. They are, in the sight of God, becoming one flesh. They come together, and they are knit together in that union. The second truth we must grasp is this, what Paul says in verse 17, that this union is a picture of the relationship between Christ and his people. We're one, Paul says in that verse, spirit with him. By spirit, he means the whole person, body and soul. And so that coming together of Adam and Eve and, and ever since then of man and woman, husband and wife, whereby they've come together and become one flesh, it points to this greater reality whereby we are one with Christ by the Holy Spirit, body and soul. And so what's his conclusion in verse 18? Flee, therefore, from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. There are three things he might mean there. He might mean all of them. Number one, he might be saying it's a sin against our spouse. To indulge in sexual immorality is a sin against our spouse with whom we form one body, one flesh. And so sexual immorality is a sin against that union, that one body, that one flesh. That might be his point. His point might be, secondly, that it is a sin against Christ, with whom we're joined into one body by the Holy Spirit. That's very plausible. But I'm inclined to think it's the third in view. He is speaking of our very body, the physical body. If sexual immorality is a sin against our physical body because we are using it in a way that God himself never designed nor intended. Do you not know? Third implication. He draws it out in verses 19 and 20. Implication, again, it's all building on the back of that quote in verse 16 from Genesis 2. The two will become one flesh. Here's the third, verse 19. Do you not know two truths? Number one, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. The Holy Spirit is within you. Therefore, just as the local church is a temple of the living God, so too we as individuals, my very body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells and abides in me. What's the second truth? Do you not know? You are not your own. You think you're independent. You think you're free. You're not. You have an owner, God himself. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. 
Therefore, we are not free to do whatever we please with our bodies. Did you get the three arguments? I think they're pretty straightforward. Again, out of verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Out of verse uh, 15, um, 16. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? And out of verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And so Paul is squarely opposing this element within the church at Corinth. And I think we can, we can surmise from what he says here simply the following. He presents before them again this slogan. The two shall become one flesh. He draws out the implications of that slogan, and he does so why? To correct the slogan that they have adopted and that they are championing back in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Therefore, I can do whatever I want with my body. It doesn't matter. There's the text. And as Paul draws it all to a conclusion, what does he say right at the end of verse 20? Rather than thinking you can do whatever you want with your body, what's his conclusion to the matter? Last statement, verse 20. So glorify God in your body. And so he's corrected their thinking, challenged them as to the meaning of Scripture itself, reminded them of what they know, and now he urges them and exhorts them to act in a manner of fashion consistent with what they know. Glorify God in your body. The question I want to ask in the remainder of our time is this. What does this look like? What does it look like to glorify God in my body? What will it look like in this context, staying in these verses 12 through 20, what will it look like to glorify God in your body? I'm going to make six affirmations, maybe seven. We'll see how the time goes. And I'm going to do so by way of question, realizing that we are a diverse group. And many here this morning coming from different experiences, different history, And at different stages of the Christian journey, and some here this morning perhaps who aren't Christians, you find yourself outside of Christ and outside of this spiritual body of which we've been speaking. And so six questions I want to ask of you as we wrestle to apply, struggle to apply this commandment, glorify God in your body. And I'm sure at least one, two, three of these questions will be directly relevant and pertinent to you. So here they are. Question number one. In light of this command, in the light of what Paul says in these verses, are you, am I, upholding God's design for marriage? Are we upholding God's design for marriage? The marriage bed, as I stated moments ago, is one of God's good gifts, and it is to be celebrated And it is to be enjoyed as he himself designed it and intended it to be. That necessitates on our part taking a very strong stance when it comes to the world. 
we need to guard ourselves. If we are going to uphold God's design for marriage, we must guard ourselves from the world's deception. I've never done this. I don't suggest you do it. But a fire hydrant that has broken and the water is streaming out, can you imagine what it would be like to stand in front of that with open mouth and try to drink from a fire hydrant? That is what we are doing as Christians in this society when it comes to sexuality and all of the related, related issues to it. We are standing before a fire hydrant, and we are being overwhelmed and overrun and bombarded by a constant message from this world. You think you are immune to it? I have news for you. You are rather naive. We are not immune to it. The media is saturated with it, and it is the heartbeat of American society. It is. And if we are going to uphold God's design for marriage, how we must guard ourselves from the world's deception. Unbelievers tell us, when it comes to sexual immorality, that they're liberated. It's a common phraseology. They're liberated. They tell us they're having a good time. <laughs> they tell us it is possible to engage in immorality without consequences. One of the biggest lies going. They tell us we're missing out. Here's what the world doesn't tell us, but God does. When it comes to the marriage bed and this union between husband and wife going all the way back to Adam and Eve, the world, unbelievers, are thieves. It is now a good gift that is not for them. Because it is not a good gift that cannot be fully properly enjoyed and celebrated outside of Christ. You need to understand that. So all that the world tells us related to this issue is coming from the hand, the mouth of a thief. They've stolen something that does not actually even belong to them. They've taken it. And in taking it, they have abused it, and they have distorted it, and they have twisted it. And here's the saddest part, and you only need to go to Romans 1 for verification of this. In doing all of that, they have debased themselves, thereby making themselves very little better than the animals themselves. That is our society. That is the world in which we live, and that is the message we are constantly fed. And how, as Christians, we must be clear on this and celebrate God's good and perfect design. That God's intention for man, for woman, in the context of a covenantal union known as marriage, this coming together whereby they become one flesh, good in his sight, and something that he himself has designed, orchestrated, created, for what? His own glory. Here's a second question I hope we've all got a clear answer to. Are you rejecting, I mean consciously rejecting, the false thinking that divorces the body and the soul? It's so difficult because it is part and parcel of Western civilization, this dualistic mindset that divorces the body and the soul. Back to the Corinthian slogan, verse 13, food is meant for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. In other words, it doesn't matter what we do with the body. 
All that matters is the soul. Many today have the same slogan. Many even professing Christians have adopted this slogan. I sat down with a young man a couple of years ago in Costa Rica, a professing Christian, and just probed a little bit his, his life, his walk with the Lord, and challenged him when he became a parent as to his relationship, which he openly shared with his girlfriend and what he was indulging in, and challenged him on that and what Scripture has to say regarding that and what was his response. It could have been straight out of the Church of Corinth. It was exactly the same slogan. It doesn't matter. As long as my soul is right with God, as long as I'm sincerely seeking God, as long as I love God, as long as everything's good between me and God, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. And Paul's entire point, let me repeat it, unless somehow you've missed it, is what in this text? Yes, it does matter. It matters a great deal. God himself has bought it. God himself is going to resurrect it. God himself is the owner of it. And God has called you to do but one thing right now in the present, and it is to glorify him with your body by seeking his will in all things above all else. Oh, but this prevailing mindset, oh, immorality is something I do with the body, but my heart belongs to God, and that's all that matters. It sounds so sweet, doesn't it? It's diabolical is what it is. It does matter. So here's the question. Are you clearly and consciously rejecting this false thinking notion that is even making headway, dare I say it, within evangelicalism today, whereby we divorce the body and soul? We must reject it. Here's the third question. Are you consciously fleeing from immorality? Because if you have any hope, if you have any hope by God's grace avoiding this plague in our day, you are going to have to actively flee from it. We face a dilemma. The dilemma arises from many factors. Here's but two. The first is this. In our day, the normalization of immorality. It is considered to be normal. It's normal. It's okay. And if you don't agree, you're strange. The normalization of immorality and not just its normalization, but now its outright celebration. We have lost. And you know, I'm not even speaking of the world. I'm speaking of us as Christians. I'm speaking of Grace Community Church. I'm speaking of some of us here right now. We have lost all sensitivity to what should shock us. It just doesn't shock us. The things we'll entertain ourselves with is absolutely startling. Blatant immorality that will be our daily consumption. And uh, Don Carson warns, our culture is slowly heating up. And he's speaking of Christians. And it is destroying us. Destroying us. Oh, we must flee from it. How? I'll give you nine steps. You ready for these? You're going to have to write quick or get the tape later. Here we go. Number one. Understand this text. That's the place to start, isn't it? There's all the theology you need. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? If you do, then act upon it. Number two. We cultivate poverty of spirit. Under recognizing our dependence upon God's grace by his spirit. Number three, we cling to God in prayer. That he would keep us from temptation, guard our hearts. Number four, we feed on God's word rather than the garbage that the world constantly sends our way. Five, we control our thought life. 
If you do not control your thought life, you are a sunk ship, even before you get out of the harbor. We must control our thought life. Number six, we must guard our eyes, make a covenant like Job of old. Number seven, we must guard our hearts. Number eight, we must keep busy. And number nine, we must avoid undue familiarity. Who was able to write all those down? I've never seen Brian write so quickly in all my life. You email me later, and I'd be happy to send those nine to you. There you have very simple nine steps. Let me just repeat them. We take these verses to heart. We cultivate poverty of spirit. We cling to God in prayer. We feed on God's word. We control our thought life. We guard our eyes. We guard our hearts. We keep busy. And we avoid undue familiarities. And as we flee from immorality, a constant companion ingredient will be this at all times. It's called good old-fashioned repentance. That's what it is. Repentance. Whereby we recognize, we identify, and we name it. That which is in our lives, in our hearts, which is repugnant in the sight of God. And we are inwardly humbled on account of it. And not just that. Plenty of weepers out there. We're visibly transformed. We do something about it. Repent is to turn away. We turn away from it. We reject it. We start going in the opposite direction, 180 degrees. Let me add just a couple of thoughts to this one. Are you fleeing from immorality? And let me recognize that uh, there may be someone here. There may be someone here right now. Um... Oh, God forbid, but this is, this is where you're at. This is it. Uh, professing believer, unbeliever. And uh, you need to hear a, a couple of things um, pastorally. The first thing you need to hear is this. Uh, forgiveness is possible, right, folks? Forgiveness is possible. Uh, forgiveness is more than possible. I remember Christ speaking to the woman caught in adultery. Uh, John chapter 8. Um, Neither do I condemn you. Remember that? Neither do I condemn you. How can the Lord Jesus speak those words to her? How can the Lord Jesus speak those words to anyone engaged in sexual immorality? He can speak those words because the Lord Jesus has done what we could never do. He has borne the righteous indignation and wrath of God upon Calvary's cross for transgressors just like you and me. And he has paid the perfect price for our sins, paid the penalty on our behalf, made full propitiation, whereby all who come to God through him, saving faith in him, looking away from themselves, looking to him and trusting in him for salvation, will hear God himself declare, I have blotted out your transgressions like a thick cloud. And your sins? Well, they're like a mist. They're like a mist. Forgiveness is possible. Here's something else coupled with that that we in particular really need to hear today. And I'm not going to get too, I'm not going to I'm not going to say more than that. You can, you can cross your T's and dot your I's on your own time and figure out where I'm going with this. But, but the other thing we need to be fully convinced of is the following. Conversion is possible. From looking at many Christians today, you wouldn't think it was. It is. Conversion 
is possible. Being converted, changed, radically changed, transformed, whereby we no longer are what we once were. We've become something different. Yes, a new creature in Christ Jesus, which is actually made visible now by the life we're living and the walk we're walking. One of the biggest lies today is this. And I'm just after maybe just one person here, maybe no one, but there's just one person here. You fall into this category. Yes, I'm after you. And here it is. The biggest lie today, one of the biggest lies going is this, is that sexual desire, sexual preference, they are part of a person's identity. No, they're not. They're not. They've got nothing to do with your identity. They are things we do. They do not define our personhood. They do not define who we are as a human being. They do not define who we are in terms of our identity. Our sexuality is not our identity. Our identity is as a human being created in the image of God, who owes complete fidelity to God, who has failed to render him that fidelity, and who must now come to him through faith in the Lord Jesus, whereby he becomes a new creature in Christ Jesus and starts living in a manner that is consistent with all that God designed for that individual. That's your identity. And that's what we need to live out. When it comes to this issue of sexuality and immorality and everything else accompanying it in our day. Oh, anything other than God's design is a perversion of who we are, our identity. Need to be clear on that. God's design alone is good and perfect. That's the third question. That was a rather long answer, but there you have it. Number four. Quickly, numbers four and five. I'll have to go quickly here. Number four, are you taking care of your body? Right, verse, 16, verse 20. So glorify God in your body. Back into verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Maybe someone here needs to hear that question just quickly. Uh, what does that entail? It entails so much. I mean, what? Well, we need to be careful what we put into our bodies, don't we? It's just not open season. We're to glorify God with our body. Uh, our weight does matter. Recreation and exercise do matter. Self-harm is a sin. All of these things fall into this category if we understand, and this is the paradigm for our thinking, that me right now as I stand before you, yes, soul and body, but the onus here, the focus is on the body, that as I stand before you, this body is not my own. God owns it. He's bought it. He's purchased it with the precious blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's given me a very simple command. You don't need to write a commentary on it, although I'm doing with all these points of application. Glorify God in your body. Live like someone, act like someone who actually isn't in possession of your body, but render unto God all that is glorifying and honoring to him. Are you taking care of your body? Number five, are you celebrating God's redemptive purpose for the body. What is that redemptive purpose? Oh, it's all the way back in verse 14. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. The redemptive purpose for our body. No, my friend, in glory, in eternity, 
You're not going to be some chubby little cherub with wings floating around some ethereal space playing a harp. Heaven isn't even your eternal home. I hope no one here is still thinking that. Yeah, we go to heaven when we die, our souls. Where's our eternal home? Right here. It's a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And just as God is going to renovate and renew this entire creation world in which we live now, he's going to renovate and renew our physical bodies, preparing them for eternity. That is his redemptive purpose. We are not platonic in our thinking. We are not Gnostic in our thinking. We are not dualists in our thinking. God has saved us, the whole person, body and soul. The final question, number six, are you living like someone? Am I living like someone whom God has bought? That's a great question. A good one to end with. You know where I'm getting it from. It's right there at the end of verse 19. You are not your own. Why? Because for verse 20, you were bought with a price. Are you living? Are we living like someone who belongs to God? This is the starting point. I'll think on this later. This is the starting point. I believe that thought right there, that gem. This is the starting point for obeying every command, realizing I'm bought with a price. What that price is, the precious blood of Christ, and what it reveals concerning the superabundant mercy of God. It is the starting point for obeying every command. It is the starting point for mortifying every sin. It's the starting point for healing every marriage, for forgiving every offense, for mending every relationship, for resolving every conflict, for enduring every trial, and for surrendering every right. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Our God in heaven above, make us keenly and consciously aware of that truth this very day. That we might realize that because of your mercy, you have saved us, you have redeemed us, you have purchased us. And now because of your mercies, may we offer up our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you, which is our reasonable worship. We ask this for your glory. We ask it for your glory among your people and around this world. And we seek it from your hand. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.